On New Year's Day in 1959, Fidel Castro waltzed into Havana with a bunch of ragtag rebels and ushered in a whole new era. The brutal dictator, Fulgencio Batista, he fled the country the night before. And the whole country was the scene of a huge party. And Cubans, well, they love to party. So for the next year, the party, well, it just continued. The dictator's henchmen were put on trial on TV. And people recounted horror stories of beatings and kidnappings and outright theft. One particular detail I remember hearing about is how the dictator had his personal armed force go and smash parking meters to loot them for the change. And all that change went right into Batista's coffers. Now Cuba had a ruggedly handsome group of young men and women in charge. And they did not come from backgrounds of political patronage. They demanded popular reforms, break up the huge land holdings that were holdovers from the Spanish Empire, educate the illiterate masses in the countryside, all those peasants, just centuries of scratching out an existence, redistribute some of Havana's wealth to the dirt-poor countryside, bring back democracy, end corruption. Most of these reforms, they were so popular, they were even backed by Get this, the CIA. So, as I mentioned before, the party basically continued for over a year. The revolutionaries threw out the gangsters from the casinos, and they took over the lobby of the swanky Havana Hilton, declared it Havana Libre, Free Havana. And the leader, Fidel Castro, well, he was hugely popular, popular in the USA. He went on late-night TV shows, uh, the equivalent of, you know, Jimmy Fallon, to talk about the revolution. And he was charming. He went on Ed Sullivan, which was the most important TV show in America at the time. And then when he came back to Cuba, he went fishing with Ernest Hemingway. He invited Americans to come be a part of the new Cuba. He invested more money in the tourist tourism industry. Now, fast forward two years, and that party, that is definitely over. Cuba in 1962 is in the crosshairs. This beautiful island nation was the focal point of a conflict that could have easily sparked World War III, with nuclear warheads raining down on North America and the Soviet Union. The world held its breath as the USA, Cuba, and the Soviet Union fought a war of words over Soviet nuclear warheads that were located on Cuban soil. The United States it erected a naval blockade of Cuba with nuclear submarines ready to attack Soviet warships. Soviet warships were streaming towards Cuba. And in the, in the midst of it all, President John F. Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev were on the phone, back-channeling, discussing, arguing. The American Air Force had ran missions over the island, took some fire. And Castro, he got up, pounded the podium, and said, the United States told the United States he was ready for an invasion. Cuba would never back down. In the middle of it all was Canada. Now, Canada was a country obviously very strongly allied with the United States, to be sure. But today, well, Canada, well, not today, today. We got still got COVID, but in recent years, Canada has sent more tourists to Cuba than any other country. 
Cuba and Canada, they have very warm relations. Canada and the USA also have very warm relations, but the USA and Cuba, not so much. So how is it possible that Canada can be such good friends with two nations whose governments distrust, even despise one another? Is Fidel Castro Justin Trudeau's real father? No, he's not. Just forget about that. That's ridiculous. I don't know. They look kind of similar. Come on, come on. It's not about that. That's garbage. Okay, so in the next few weeks, we're going to be examining a very strange and unlikely friendship between Cuba and Canada. We're going to be probing the backstory of Cuba in its long and tortured history of colonialism by three different world powers. We'll take you to the beaches. Yeah, sure. Okay, you could go to the beach. We'll also take you to battlefields. And we'll take you to the dance floor and other places as well. This special mini-series is brought to you by a team of student researchers and myself, Russell Cobb. I'm the host of History X. It's the show about what they didn't teach you in school. And it's broadcast only on the mighty, mighty CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton, Amiskwachewa Skygun, Treaty 6 Territory, Alberta, Canada. So it's going to be really exciting. Um, this first episode, I have two student researchers, Zane Khan and Simran Grewal, who are going to be literally going back to uh, the buffet. Um, I don't know. They may have had a pretty rough night the night before, uh, but you know, they got up early enough to get to the buffet. So, so kudos to them for that. And uh, they're going to take you some places you, may, you, you might not expect. If you think you know the history of Cuba, you think you know the history of its revolution and its warm relation with Canada, well, you're in for some real surprises. So stay right there. Ooh, look, there's Ropa Vieja and Lechon. And there's no line. This section is dead, and it's what, 12.30? Nueve syrup, por favor. Por favor, hello. Hello? What's going on over there? Honestly, I have no idea. They've got some of the best produce and freshly made Cuban food, but they're waiting in line for waffles and pancakes. Hey, don't talk trash. Nothing soaks up that bottom shelf liquor quite like Bisquick. And this place practically runs on that spicy salsa. Nothing about this bothers you? Uh, people who pay can do what they want, I guess. Huh. You know, I actually have some friends who stayed at other all-inclusives. Maybe I should hit them up and see what this is about. So it's a no to the a la carte eggs, Benny? <laughs> I'm calling Gina and Natalie. Gina and Natalie are students at the University of Alberta and have experience with all-inclusive resorts. Zane and I are having this conversation with them because we're curious to learn if all-inclusive resorts are a microcosm where we can see the hierarchy imposed by colonial powers. Thank you, Gina and Natalie, for joining us today. Since I've never actually been to an all-inclusive resort, I'd like to ask some questions about them. For many people in North America, the first point of contact for new cultures is through food. What can you say about the food that is offered at these resorts? 
Yeah, it's really funny because when I went to Cuba, I went with my parents, right? And my dad is a big food lover. Um, so when we got there, it was like very much the interpretation of Cuban food, what they thought what American food was. And it was like this weird, like, con like context random type of food. I don't know if Gina experienced this, but like they also had um, like waffles that were like just slightly off or like... Um, just the combinations of foods were weird and what they thought would have worked. So it's, yeah, so it's pretty obvious who they're trying to cater to. Their, their, their main patrons are people who are not familiar with the culture. Well, it's like trying to show them the ideal version of what they think Cuba is. Like, I remember in high school, there's a whole bunch of kids for like their graduation, like vacation is to go to Cuba. And <laughs> what they do like they don't leave the hotel all they do is get drunk in the like hotel and that's it so that's what they think Cuba is and that's why they have such fond memories of what Cuba is while completely ignoring what the actual culture is like I know when you go in the city you see like there's a whole car culture in Cuba which is insane where it's like oh let's rebuild cars and you'll see cars from like the 1950s which is awesome but no that gets completely ignored when you go in the hotel yeah, so I can add on to that. Um, when when I was staying at the resort a few years ago, when we were ordering breakfast, there was actually two options. So you can either order a breakfast typical, which means typical in Spanish, and that's like your traditional Cuban breakfast. You have like your eggs, you have your plantain, your beans, and then you can order breakfast Americano. And that's just like pancakes and like waffles or what have you. And I, I really think that like, it appeals to do to two different kinds of people that are like traveling. So there's one type of person that actually wants to get to know Cuba and actually wants to connect with the people. Like I know that when I first went, cause I've been two times, uh, I got to know the waiters and like photographers and the people on staff and they actually invited us out and they like took us out personally, like off the resort. And we were able to like connect with them and see parts of Cuba that we couldn't see on like these excursions and then like Natalie said there's the people that just want to go to the beach and party and get drunk and don't really care about Cuba they just see it as another like escapade to party and do whatever they want yeah like one of my favorite things that we did as a family when we we're in Cuba is that my dad like called the taxi driver and he's like Llevamos a donde vas a tu familia, which means like take us to where you would take your family so he took us to like the best restaurants, like where he would like take his families on weekends. And it was just like a nice, authentic experience, way different from the hotel. Thank you for sharing that. That definitely sounds like the kind of authentic experience you would want to have when you go to Cuba. Now to shift gears here a little bit, in a previous conversation we had with you both, you mentioned that there is a difference in skin tone between the present staff. Zane and I were wondering if you both could expand on that and let us know if you believe there are notions of racism present in the hiring structure of an all-inclusive. Yeah, like the main thing that I noticed was that um, if you're relatively darker, there is like a Afro-Cuban culture very prevalent in Cuba still. So the individuals that identify like that, they tend to be like either the like mates or cleaners or 
they tend to have like the lower jobs while you have like the more traditionally European looking ones. Those are your tour guides. Those are the people that are actually talking to the people that are like roaming around the hotel. I don't know if Gina had anything else to point out. Yeah, I had a really similar experience. Like if you can pass, if you can pass as like more white, you're on the front of the lines. Like you're the first people that like you see when you get off the bus or the taxi and you walk in, you see someone who's fair skinned. And then it's almost like they purposely hire people who have darker complexions to be out of sight. So like when you go to the bathroom, they make sure like it's like a darker skinned and usually older women and like the people that are cleaning your rooms who you typically don't see or run into, how convenient, they're darker skinned. So the overall vibe was pretty exploitative in a way, but it's not like they're trying to hide it. It's pretty apparent um, within the actual culture or the actual environment of an all-inclusive. Like, would you agree with that? Yeah. Like even with um, family friends, they have like this weird, like, undertone of racism where it's like they think less of you if you are darker or they are very admired like they really admire people that are more eurocentrically looking like my mom she's like kind of white passing but she's also from El Salvador but white passing so she would get compliments about her hair eyes and like how pretty she is while me it's like no comment (laughs) just kind of there yeah so it's interesting that's super present in a lot of um, uh, Asian cultures too, where it's uh, a lot of parents will always say, she could have been so beautiful, but she's dark. He could have been so much more handsome, but he's a little bit too dark. And the too dark portion is the, what do you guys mean? What are you talking about? And it's like, oh, you know what I mean? So it's a very covert, hidden and accepted form of racism. Um but it's definitely present and it's definitely there and it definitely changes how you're treated. And I'm sure that that's like expanded on multitudes within the all-inclusive resort and in that environment. Yeah, I agree. Like I, I think that it's very implicit the way that um, colorism functions in Cuba and especially at these like touristy resorts. Um, There was a conversation the last time I went that we had with one of the workers and they were laughing because they're like, everyone comes here to like lie on the beach and get tanned and get darker, but we're trying to stay in the shade. We don't want to get darker. We're like running from the sun. And I feel like that just like defines the culture there and the difference between Canadian culture and Cuban culture. That's wild. I didn't even think about that because that's they have to make an active effort to not get darker to try and curb any discrimination towards them. I did not think about that. See, I wasn't looking too deeply into this. These all-inclusive resorts are just a microcosm of colonial influences and we're feeding right into it. Feeding right into it? How? Cuba is a socialist country. How does me coming to a resort have anything to do with that? There are roots of slavery, exploitation, and colonialism here. It's our job to be conscious of this, even if we are consumers. Look, if we actually want to learn more about this, it'll probably be helpful to go to the first point of contact. In the late 1400s, Christopher Columbus arrived in the Bahamas and encountered the Taino people. The Taino people had very complex and hierarchical systems in place 
which ranged from art, music, and poetry down to political and social systems. When Columbus arrived there, they were the dominant ethnic group of the Caribbean and inhabited what is now Cuba, Haiti, Jamaica, the Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico. But by the mid-1500s, they were close to extinction. This was the result of horrors they were subject to at the hands of the Spanish conquistadors. Enslavement, starvation, and disease wiped out vast swathes of the Taino people. But to the Spaniards, this was nothing new. It was almost protocol. The Spanish placed themselves at the top, deeming themselves superior for many reasons, especially their white race. The Spaniards brought with them a multitude of pests and pathogens, along with colonial economic motives. The disastrous consequences were almost intended by the Spanish, and by the mid-1500s, the Taino people were on the brink of having nobody left to carry on their cultural practices. Small segments of Taino people have emerged in Latin America and parts of the U.S., and this has since translated into establishing organizations that affirm and restore Taino values. But to this day, the Taino people are not recognized by any groups or governments whatsoever. And this is where we explore the idea or theory of the Stranger King. In his book, Conflict, Justice, and the Stranger King, David Henley describes the Stranger King as just that, a stranger who becomes king. What it kind of boils down to is this. Here is this new figure who has washed up on our shores with these great boats and fancy clothes, bearing gifts from far and wide. They look super scary, but hey, look, they have nice gifts. This type of thinking leads to a type of self-subjugation, if you will, and it's a covert form of expansionary colonialism. In this context, the conquistadors were thinking, hey, let me make you think I have your best interests at heart, and then my manipulation will truly begin. And of course, it started off and was presented historically as mutualistic, but come on, who is buying that crap? Cuba had a slave-powered plantation economic model, and that was something the Americans were already privy to, especially the Americans from the South. Southerners saw this as a potential opportunity to establish another slave state, or at the very least, make some money. The Spanish were facilitating sugar production through Cuba as a proxy, and they raised the population of Cuba dramatically by literally importing hundreds of thousands of slaves. When the steam-powered mills, the Ingenios, came to Cuba, the sugar industry was catapulted onto the world stage as a major producer, and expansion came with its own set of challenges. With this explosion of sugar and demands growing exponentially, the relationship between Spain and Cuba was deteriorating fast. Spain tried to quell this by flexing their authority, and that was the Ten-Year War. This was because Spain was trying to raise taxes and further mill Cuba for all it had. This would have been less of an issue if Spain actually had a competent government, but no, it was pretty darn corrupt, and Cuba was getting more and more angry when Spain was falling short on promises of reforms and went ahead again to try and weaken U.S.-Cuban relations. Cuba wasn't having it. They were not a fan of colonial authority, and they made it pretty clear that if Spain wasn't on board with American relations, then they shouldn't even be in the picture. This was almost a case of like, my spouse doesn't pay enough attention to me, so I'm going to go and try and make them jealous by hanging out with this new mysterious person. And then you find out this new person is a straight up serial killer and way worse than your ex. The US was not who they made themselves out to be. And this ties back to the idea that often these relationships are based on illusions of grandeur. The Americans wanted sugar and more colonies, but it was not presented like that. 
Simran is going to introduce how this played out in terms of rebellions and occupation. So Cuba's path towards independence has been a tough one. And near the end of the 1800s, Cuba got what it wanted, in some ways. In 1868, we saw a strong effort towards independence when revolutionaries fought against Spanish occupation in the Ten-Year War. While Spain did not lose, Spain would see its defeat very soon. Certain revolutionaries, like Jose Marti, continued the battle in many ways, and in 1895, he launched their three-pronged invasion of the island with help from American troops. While there were many losses, there were also many wins, and eventually, in 1898, we saw Spain's defeat by Cuban and American forces. Ooh, they were sleeping with the enemy. Yup. With Spain out of the way, the U.S. found itself in a very advantageous position, where they could announce the terms of their relations with Cuba and make themselves out to be the good guys, when that wasn't necessarily the case. This is kind of like when your mom is convincing you that summer camp is going to be fun, but you know for a fact that it's full of weird kids. Right. So the U.S. occupied Cuba until 1902, when the U.S. allowed for the Republic of Cuba to be formally installed with a new government. While this supposed independence was a great feat, it came with a couple of conditions. This friends with benefits arrangement ended up having some serious strings attached. For one, the U.S. was still allowed to intervene in the country according to the Platt Amendment, which was later repealed in 1934 when both countries signed the Treaty of Relations. What this treaty meant was that Cuba had replaced one hegemony with another. Basically, one abusive boyfriend was replaced with another. Hegemony, according to John Chastain, can be defined as a kind of domination that implies a measure of consent by those at the bottom. This means that these supposedly good relations with the U.S. would only last so long as Cubans realized they had not entirely reached the independence they had been fighting for and were still under a level of colonial rule. In the end, similar to our microcosm of the all-inclusive resorts, the relationship the U.S. had with Cuba was exploitative. Cubans were forced to appeal to American needs, and this is similar to the relationship they had with Spain. Here we come to a new era in Cuban history, with anti-American sentiment developing and a desire for complete independence from colonial influences. We come across a key figure who greatly defined the trajectory of Cuba's future: Fidel Castro. Nicholas Bolin's article defined Castro's grand plan through four primary strategic aims. The first was to break free of the hegemonic relationship with the U.S. This meant that despite the efforts of the U.S. to maintain a role in Cuba, Castro declined their help, believing that any reliance on the U.S. now would simply lead to greater dependence on them again in the future. The U.S. was not happy with any of this. Castro's second aim was to devote time and energy to maintain the revolution at home. For Castro, this meant adopting a new constitution, turning away from democracy and outlawing political opposition. Essentially, Castro assumed powers that are, as Bolin states, familiar to most Latin American dictators. The third aim of Castro's grand plan with the revolution was to manage Cuba's foreign relations, to achieve both protection for himself against U.S. aggression and avoid reliance on another colonial master. Basically. Castro's goal was to avoid entering into another hegemonic relationship to get out of the one Cuba already had with the U.S. This would prove to be futile because, in the end, Castro had formed relations with the USSR to help against American involvement. Once again, 
one colonial master had been traded in for another. And as the Cuban Missile Crisis would reveal, reliance on the Soviets could not always guarantee protection against the U.S. So you're telling me Castro was choosing between the lesser of two evils and he thought the Soviet USSR was a good dance partner? Yikes. I mean, it is surprising, but again, lesser of two evils. This brings us to Castro's fourth aim, which was left incomplete, to export this revolution to various other developing nations. So where does Canada get involved? What does the Cuban Missile Crisis mean for Cuba's future? Within this context, the support of a country like Canada could feel very rewarding. However, Canada was not so innocent in the matter. Sure, Canada helped Cuba by supplying minimal economic assistance, but their focus was not on Cuban independence. They were focused on what Cuba could bring Canada in terms of economic prosperity. In this sense, they were very much like the U.S. Essentially, this reveals that Canada-Cuba relations are sort of an illusion. Canada would always be closer to the U.S. than to Cuba, but that didn't mean Canada couldn't play pretend. It's why it's interesting to see the kind of positive relations that Canadians and Cubans share today when Canada could potentially be held just as responsible as the U.S. and the negative part they played with the Cuban Revolution. In the end, independence doesn't end up feeling like independence when you're still catering to another country's needs. And like the food options at the all-inclusive resorts, we see the presence of serving colonial masters continue today. So, do you still want your pancakes and waffles? Eh, I think I'll pass. That lechon looks really good. Maybe some of that ropa vieja. When in Cuba, do as the Cubans do. You are listening to the mighty, mighty CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Amiskwichiwa Skygon, Treaty 6 Territory. This is the show, History X, about what they didn't teach you in school. Every episode, History X takes you on an unexpected deep dive into a part of history that is misunderstood, repressed, or just simply forgotten. This episode, we're actually dealing with a series, a three-part series dealing with Canada-Cuba relations. Now, if you think you really know the history of Cuba and the Cuban Revolution and all that, you probably don't because there are surprises in here for everyone. This episode has been written and associately produced by Zane Khan and Simran Grewal. I am Russell Cobb. And uh, next time, I think you're going to really enjoy it as well. Uh, we're going to take you in another unexpected direction and really get into that moment when um, the world came like a hair's breadth from World War III. It's kind of fascinating and, and terrifying to remember that time. But uh, And also, you probably don't know the whole backstory because they didn't want you to know the backstory. It was pretty twisted. Anyway, um, that's next time on this Canada-Cuba miniseries. I'd like to uh, give a special shout out. This 
episode to the folks at Community Service Learning in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta. Community Service Learning really seeks to bridge the gap between the classroom, what goes on in the classroom, and what goes on in the community. Um, I was happy to pair a couple of students with the uh, our much beloved community radio station, CGSR, and um, help the students produce this interesting take on Canada-Cuba relations. So thank you, C- thank you, CSL. Thank you, Simran and Zane again. And uh, we'll see you next time. Hasta luego. Nos vemos. Ciao. And to take us out, let's hear some suave melodies and harmonies from the 1960s in, in Cuba. Los Zafiros with Bossa Cubana. Cubanita primorosa, juguetón y deliciosa. Cuando asome en la mañana su sonrisa de La Habana Con su suave movimiento tan ligeros como el viento Que me excita y me fascina, que me lleve y me domina Bosa cubana, como noche luminosa de esta tierra tan hermosa Como el beso de una moza coquetona y amorosa Hay sabor y melodía, tiene fuego y alegría Tiene un ritmo que arremata esta zampa que me roba el corazón. Bosa no, bosa no, bosa no. Cubanita primorosa, juguetón y deliciosa. Cuando asome en la mañana su sonrisa de la Habana. Con su suave movimiento tan ligeros como el viento. Que me excita y me fascina, que me lleve y me domina Bosa cubana, como noche luminosa de esta tierra tan hermosa Bosa cubana.